It's a blessing to be with you this morning, Four Corners Church. Good morning, family. That is what we are as the people of God, Christians all over the world. We are a family. You have felt this undoubtedly when you go to another place or another country and you're with God's people. Even if the country's quite strange and to you, and it takes some time to adjust to as you begin to attend church and get to know the Christians there, you really do feel as though you are with family. And how much more is that the case with one another here at Four Corners as we gather week in and week out together uh, as God's people, as we covenant together as members of this local church, many of us, and as we participate in the community life and service of the church, we here are a family. So we give God thanks. We thank Him for another opportunity to gather as a local church, to see each other, to hopefully edify one another. I pray that we would leave here edified this morning, not just because of what happens here in the corporate service, but also because of the ways in which we minister to each other afterwards or even before as you came here, even if from six feet or more. Still, we edify each other. And we miss those of you who have not been able to, for whatever reason, you've not felt comfortable or you have not been able to attend. We do miss you, and we look forward to a time when we can all be together as a local church. If you would please go with me in your Bibles at this time to Romans chapter 2. We are in verses 6 to 11. Romans 2 verses 6 to 11. The title for the sermon today is The Righteous Judgment Part 2. We're going to be finishing up what we began last week. Last week was part one of these verses verses 6 to 11, and this week will be part 2. As we look at God's righteous judgment, as it is described in these verses, and of course we recognize that as we go through any text of Scripture, any book, we will come to passages where uh, we can't just sort of leave that passage and do uh, a big study of the theology of that idea in all of Scripture. We try to interpret Scripture with Scripture and bring as much to bear to help us understand the text right in front of us. So that is why I say, as we look at God's righteous judgment as it is described in these verses, two things occupy our attention. So these were our two points that I presented to you last week, and you'll see them here on the screen. First, the principle the principle of judgment. That was last week. And then today we're going to look at the people, the people who are judged. So the principle and the people. I was talking with several folks this week about uh, last week's sermon, last week's text. And in one of those conversations, I commented that one of the great benefits of expository preaching is that we can't skip over the hard or uncomfortable bits in Scripture. That's one of the great benefits for any church that practices expositional preaching. And as you see in our vision statement, we are a church that builds on exposition. We believe that this is fundamental 
to our practice, to our identity and practice as a local Christian church, building on the exposition of God's Word. And one of the benefits of exposition is that you will cover a whole host of doctrines and ideas uh, that will unfold logically from book to book, from passage to passage. And you don't just get to keep uh, reminding yourself of what you already, quote unquote, know, but we're constantly impacted and altered and moved and transformed by the Word. So over the course of our lives, as we subject ourselves to God's Word in that way, our, our theology and our doctrine, our understanding of what the Bible teaches is molded and shaped and grown. And so we, we move forward as Christians in how we think. And that inevitably comes from having to deal with those passages that are hard to fit just hard to fit with what we already know, with what we already accept to be true or right. Last week, we came to a potentially unsettling verse, verse 6 of chapter 2. You will see it here. God will render to each one according to his works. Now, I say potentially unsettling because uh, after the sermon last week, perhaps there were uh, many of us who uh, did not think anything of it, just moved forward. Okay, got it. But there were some who were wrestling with quite a bit what in the world we do with these ideas and what we do with a verse like this. So it is, I say, potentially unsettling. But we have to deal with it and, and understand it in this context. Paul is explaining that both Jews and Gentiles will face God's righteous judgment. God will judge Jew and Gentile alike. Not just those dirty, rotten Gentiles described at the end of chapter 1, but God will also describe, um, God will also judge the Jews, those who might be speaking like the person addressed at the very beginning of chapter 2. You have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, and so forth. God will judge Jew and Gentile alike. <clears throat> God's judgment is righteous. And it is righteous because it is impartial. He will not judge the Jew with favoritism simply because he is a Jew. The Jews do not get favorite status. The Jews do not get this special leniency with regard to their sins. No. God will judge Jew and Gentile alike. It is righteous because it is impartial. And it is impartial because it is based on deeds. It's the only way that it can be, impartial. Another way to say that is it is according to the truth of the matter. It is based on the truth of the matter. As Paul says here, according to one's works. This is the principle or criterion of God's judgment. And it is a biblical truth found all throughout Scripture. And I gave you several cross-references last week, and uh, we could go through and multiply those and, 
I would encourage you to pick up a, a systematic theology, but probably you'd want to pick up maybe three or four of them and read the section on the final judgment. And of course, you will find various views of what the, the judgments for some who see various judgments of God and for others who see one singular judgment, but nonetheless, however you understand the judgment or judgments of God, we find all throughout Scripture, it is ubiquitous, this idea that it is according to works. Yes, the Bible teaches justification by faith alone. And yes, the Bible teaches final judgment according to works. Hopefully, today, it will become a little clearer for all of us how these two work together as we come to verses 7 to 10. And so the hope is that last week unsettled you. The hope is that last week jolted you to think about these things freshly and to live and think in light of future judgment. But also, I pray that today we'll begin to sort of help you put the pieces together a little bit with regard to our justification by faith alone, grace alone, in Christ alone, and final works based, final judgment based on works. And as we move in that direction this morning, so that's where we're headed, as we move in that direction, I want to just give you another quote from a pretty well-known commentator. He's commented on many biblical books, a man named Leon Morris. This is what he says with respect to this passage. It is the invariable teaching of the Bible and not the peculiar viewpoint of any one writer or group of writers that judgment will be on the basis of works, though salvation is all of grace. Works are important. They are the outward expression of what the person is deep down. My prayer is that we will begin to understand that a little more as we move into verse 7 in particular. So if you would please stand with me for God's word, for the reading of God's word. We're looking today at verses 6 through 11, and specifically within that, verses 7 to 10. But I want us to read all of verses 1 to 11, because this is the bigger chunk, and you get the context there. So at the end of chapter 1, Paul has just described the absolute wickedness and lostness and darkness of the Gentile world, the Gentile non-Jewish nations. And now, chapter 2, he turns to the Jew who's been clapping his hands, saying, Amen, and now he directs his words to them. This is the word of God. It is profitable and perfect. Therefore, <clears throat> you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things, i.e. what was just described at the end of chapter 1. Do you suppose, <clears throat> O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? 
Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And here's our passage for last week and today. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, and here is his main point of all of this, for God shows no partiality. You can go ahead and be seated at this time. Let's go to God in prayer, ask for his help, ask for clarity in this sermon, and that our hearts would hear that the ears, isn't it amazing that God, when he saves us, gives us ears on our hearts, and he gives us eyes on our hearts. So let's pray today that God would open up those ears, unclog them from the weak, and that he would scratch off or, or rub off the, those lenses so that we would see clearly with the eyes of our hearts, as Paul prays in Ephesians, with the eyes of our hearts, we would see his glory through his word. Let's pray. Father, we bow before you this day, O oh God. You are the judge. You are the judge of all the earth. You are from everlasting to everlasting. You have no beginning. You have no end. You are the Lord. You alone are God. The gods of the nations are but idols. Father, we exalt your holy name this morning through our Lord Jesus Christ, the risen Redeemer. We praise you with a chorus innumerable of angels and souls who have gone before us. We join this morning in praising your holy name. God, we ask this morning that you would move forward your kingdom work through our time, that you would accomplish your will among us, and that you would provide what we need today. Lord, as we in our frailty, as Christians, we constantly live dependent on you. Lord, we pray that we would receive from you this day food for our souls, that you would feed us today from your word, for that is why we've come today, Lord, to, to feed and to worship, and to worship by feeding. And so, God, we pray that our souls would eat, that our, the eyes of our hearts would see, that the ears of our hearts would hear, and that we would not just be hearers, but we would be doers, that our lives would look different because we were here today. God, every moment we have is a gift from you. We praise you for it. We thank you for this very moment as we, as we live. 
we live. We will not always live, though, here. And God, I pray that this content that we have before us from your word would remind us of the brevity of life, the certainty of judgment, and the gospel of grace unto good works. Father, please reshape, reform our thinking, our theology, our worship. Help us, we pray. God, help me to speak clearly and accurately. In the name of Christ, we ask these things. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're looking at the people this morning. Last week was the principle. Today is the people. And there are two kinds of people described in verses 7 to 10. Two kinds of people alive today. Two kinds of people, perhaps. I'd like to think this is not the case. But it's probably the case. Two kinds of people here this morning. Two kinds of people who will stand before God. There's not a spectrum. It's either or. Two kinds of people who will enter into everlasting existence. And I say everlasting existence because for one, it is the existence of life. For the other, it is the existence of death. There is, on the one hand, the saved who receive eternal life. And on the other hand, the condemned who receive wrath. So that's what we'll spend our time looking at. I haven't put these up there, but you can write them down. We're looking at the people, and we're going to walk through two kinds of people, the saved and the condemned. Very simple. So you can just write that down if you would like, the saved and the condemned. And let me just say to you this morning, very clearly, you will fit, you will fit into one of these two categories. When your life is said and done, as I said last week, our lives are a vapor, a flower, a fading flower here today and gone tomorrow. When our lives are said and done, it will either fall under verses 7 and 10 or it will fall under verses 8 and 9. How sobering this is. And let me just say this to you. If you're lost in the the fine points of it, if for you, after hearing last week, you've gone back to the text and you've gone back to your systematic theologies and you're wrestling with this and you're trying to parse it out and it's all very heady for you. It's all very up here. It's all very, very figure it out. It's all sitting in theology class trying to parse it out. Let me say this. Let this go deeper for you. Don't hear the sermon. Don't sit under this text and just think heady things. Let the weight and the sobering truth of God's final judgment fall on you in order that his judgment won't fall on you in that day. Let these truths sit heavy on your heart. Don't merely get lost in the academic or theological questions, but let the truth affect your life. To miss that is to let this pass you by. 
to let God's word just pass you by. So first, this morning, let's look at the saved. Look at verses 7 and 10. There's a massive contrast here, and so we're going to just take it apart and look at each of the two groups of people. So verses 7 and 10. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. And then we go on to verse 10. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. <clears throat> so God will render to each one according to his works. And what this text tells us is that there will be some, there will be some on the day of judgment who are judged to be doers of good. You see that? There will be some on the day of judgment who are judged to be doers of good. <clears throat> now, you might be thinking when you hear that, that may sound very strange to you. You might be thinking when you hear that, hold on a second. <clears throat> you may be flipping the pages. Paul will go on in Romans chapter 3, verse 12 to say this. No one does good, not even one. So you hear that and you think, no, 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 no. No one does good. So how in the world at the final judgment will there be found, as verses 7 and 10 say, doers of good when no one does good? And yes, <clears throat> apart from Christ, that is absolutely true. And that is the main point Paul is making in chapter 1, verse 18, to chapter 3, verse 20. All are unrighteous and in need of the righteousness of God by faith through Christ. That's the big idea. That's the big idea of chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to 320. So, of course, it's the case that apart from Christ, all are unrighteous. But listen, Christian, listen. Throughout the New Testament, we learn that those who are in Christ, who have been born again by the Spirit of God, who have been justified by faith, who have a new heart, Jeremiah 31, who have a new heart, and who out of that new heart are in fact doers of good. Hear that. From a new heart, the Christian does good. Jeremiah 31, verse 33, the new covenant. This is what Christ accomplished. The new covenant in my blood. This is what we remember every time we partake of the Lord's Supper. This covenant. What does it say there? Among many other things, but I'm highlighting this one particular thing. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. New hearts. Christians have new hearts. Hearts. And regarding good works which proceed from these new hearts, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 17 says that by means of the scriptures, we Christians are, listen to the language, equipped for every good work. We do do good works as Christians. 
from a good heart. A new heart. Circumcised by the Holy Spirit through Christ, the heart of a Christian. Praise God for the heart of a Christian. Salt of the earth, light of the world, and the deeds that proceed from it. Ephesians 2 verse 10 says, we were created in Christ Jesus for good works. We were created for this. I mean, this is what it is to be a Christian in part understood is we are good work people. That's what we were created for. So here, as he deals with the unbelieving Jew, Paul is anticipating his later argument. So catch this. I know this is a bit tedious, but the big idea of this chunk is all are unrighteous apart from Christ. But Paul here puts in a bit of anticipation for what he's going to describe later, and that is the life of one who is in Christ, the, the final end of one who is in Christ. His later argument that many Jews and Gentiles alike have been united to Christ by faith, and it is they and they alone who will receive eternal life. All other people are under God's wrath. So here's my point. I hope I haven't lost you. Here's my point. Paul is here referring to Christians, period. That's what he's referring to in verses 7 and 10 are Christian believers, the only people who receive eternal life. So how does Paul describe these people? The saved These people who receive eternal life. How does Paul describe them? And let me just say something I love about passages like this. These sorts of passages are so helpful in the Christian life for two reasons. They provide a test and a motivator. A test and a motivator. And by the way, you find throughout Scripture these references to passages like this that are meant to do that. They provide a test and a motivator. They provide a test insofar as we put the Christian life before us, we get to look at it and see it. It's described for us here in verse 7, beautiful terms. There's the Christian life. And it's a test for you. Is that me? Imperfectly so. In a broken way, is that me? Or not? I think you know the answer pretty quickly. Is that me? But it's also a motivator. When God, through his word, puts before us the Christian life, he holds it up before our eyes in all of its splendor, with all of its sparkliness. We are drawn to it. Oh, that's the life God's called me to. That's the life he's equipped me for. That's the life that I get to live. And so we're spurred on. We're motivated. As we see the Christian life before our eyes, we're motivated to live it. In all of its beauty. Oh, and how precious and beautiful it is. So let this do that for you this morning. So what do we see? How does Paul describe the Christian? How does Paul describe these people, the saved? First, the issue is faith. Now you might be wondering up to this point how faith and works go together. How is it we are justified by faith alone and final judgment is based on works? 
How, how do we do that, faith and works? I think one of the ways to come at that is that as Paul describes the Christian in verses 7 and 10, the issue is faith all around. And look at the language. In verse 7, Paul is essentially describing what? A heart of faith. One that seeks glory and honor and immortality. That's a person of faith. One who seeks glory and honor and immortality. Glory involves being made like Christ in the presence of Christ. Glorification. Honor involves hearing the words from Matthew 25, 21. Well done, good and faithful servant. Well done, authentic disciple of Jesus. Well done, authentic child of God. And immortality means no death, no end, through the resurrection of Christ. So do you see how inextricably woven together these things are? Faith in Christ and seeking glory and honor and immortality. It's synonymous, really. To believe in Christ, to follow Christ, equals to seek glory and honor and immortality. That's what Paul is doing here. I like the way John Stott describes it. He says this, glory, the manifestation of God himself, honor, God's approval, and immortality, the unfading joy of his presence. It's God-centered. You, now, when I first started meditating on this, I, I thought, this sounds weird. Seek glory and honor and immortality. I mean, that's the one thing you think that a, 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 a non-believer does, right? It's, I seek glory. I seek honor. This is the, the, the ancient Spartan, you know, or Roman general with his triumph coming through Rome with his foot on the head of his enemy. Entourage of prisoners in chains. This is glory and honor. The Egyptians, they certainly sought immortality through all kinds of means, building these massive pyramids, decorating and leaving all, King Tut's tomb, leaving all these treasures for the afterlife in their tomb. Certainly they sought immortality. But this is, this is all about God. This is seeking glory and honor and immortality with God and his gospel of Christ at the center that's what's in view. That's what Paul is talking about. To seek these things is to live a life of faith. We saw that with Abraham, did we not? To seek these things is to live a life of faith, a life of hope in the resurrected Christ, a life fixed on heavenly things. Let me give you a couple of verses that I think bear this out. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. What does Paul say there? Seek the things that are above where Christ is. Well, what is above where Christ is? Glory and honor and immortality. That's what we seek. What does Jesus say in Matthew 6, 33? Seek first the kingdom of God and his 
righteousness. What does that mean? You seek glory and honor and immortality. It's the same thing. So, basically, what Paul is describing here, and hear this if you're struggling with faith and works, hear this, what Paul is describing here is a heart of faith. A heart that looks to the fulfillment of all of God's promises through Christ. A heart like Abraham's, who looked to the heavenly city, who looked to a city not built with human hands. Jacob, who wanted to be buried back in Canaan, because he knew what God would do. Joseph who said, when God shows up and does this mighty thing, take my bones back. The same thing. It's called faith. Biblical faith. Not this American, uh, current, contemporary, kind of vaporous thing called faith that we entertain often. Biblical faith. Real faith. Gospel-centered, heavy, God-glorifying, work-producing faith. That which is described in Holy Scripture. Not in sentimental, evangelical subculture. So first, the issue is faith. Second, faith by definition works. So now I want to look at this in particular. Faith by definition works. It is true that there is no such thing as a perfect Christian life. Let me just go ahead and say that very quickly. There is no such thing as a perfect Christian life. Far, far from it. Study any Christian in history. Study any of your favorite people, the people that you look to. And by the way, that's a wonderful thing to look. Hebrews 11 makes that clear. To look back and study biographies of of great men and women of God and to desire to emulate them just as Paul says, emulate me, imitate me. And look back on any of these people and what you will see is imperfection. Imperfection. And if you dig deep enough, you will even see great imperfection. All of them. All the reformers. All the church fathers. All the characters in the Bible. And so forth. All the people you know. Your your parents. Your godly parents. You knew them. You knew them from the time they woke up in the morning in their pajamas. Till the time they went to bed. They may have been godly, great Christians. They weren't perfect. You're not perfect. I'm not perfect. None of us is. But it is also true that there is no such thing as an unproductive Christian life. There is no such thing as a, as a perfect Christian life, and there is no such thing as an unproductive Christian life. It will, it will, it will produce some fruit. Some fruit. Matthew chapter 7, verse 19, Jesus in Matthew 7:19 Jesus makes this clear. He says, "Every tree that does not bear fruit, bear good fruit, is cut down and thrown into the fire." Let me paraphrase that. Every Christian, so-called, who does not bear good fruit does not fall into verses 7 and 10 in this passage, but rather verses 8 and 9. That's the fire, thrown into the fire. Where there is a heart of faith, as I just described a bit ago, there will be patience 
in well-doing. That's the language that Paul uses here. Where there is a heart of faith, i.e. a heart seeking glory and honor and immortality, a heart fixed on things above, a heart that seeks first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, where that exists, there will be by necessity, by necessity, a flowing out from that of patience in well-doing. So let's take that apart for a moment. Good works maintained until the end of life demonstrate the reality of the faith itself. And certainly we can point to people who have lived for the Lord and then maybe at the end of their lives they sort of fell away and we just don't know. Leave that to God. But don't use that person's experience and biography to define for you what the Christian life is. Let the Bible define for you what the Christian life is. We don't know what happened to great-grandma. We don't know what happened to Uncle Tommy. We don't know what happened to our friend from school growing up. What we know is what the Word of God says. And what it says is patience in well-doing. Listen to how Jesus pulls all this together in Luke chapter 8, verse 15, in the parable of the sower. I love this parable. Teach this parable to your kids. Put it deep in their hearts. Protect them from nominal Christianity. Jesus says this, Luke 8, 15, As for that in the good soil, that's the seed that fell in the good soil, The word of God falling on a heart. As for that in the good soil, they are those who hearing the word. Now you have to listen to Jesus' language here. It's so clear. It's so clear. Those who hearing the word hold it fast in an honest and good heart. One that seeks glory and honor and immortality. And bear fruit with patience. Hold it fast, bear fruit with patience. So from the mouth of our Lord himself, he is saying that's the only kind of good soil. The other soils, no good. No good. This is the good soil. And then he breaks down within that good soil different kinds of Christians. And some we know just flopping around. Wasting many, many opportunities not serving the Lord. They're still good soil if they're true and authentic and they produce some fruit. Of course, their works, if not done in the Spirit, will be burned up. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, though they themselves will be saved. But we see patience is the hallmark of a Christian to the end. And these good works that, Christ, that Christians endure in take many forms. Someone asked me last week, you know, what, what exactly are these good works? Well, it's interesting that throughout the New Testament, we get language like this, every good work. I mean, there are specific instances that we could point to, but it's interesting that when good works are referred to, it's, it's just thrown out there with, with all of its variability. Every good work, every good work work. We know one thing. It's centered on love. Galatians chapter 5 verse 6, faith working through love. 
So whatever we are to put in that spot of good works, we know that these are works of love, particularly, especially for the people of God, and then beyond that to everyone. These are works of love. So here we see three essential ingredients of a Christian. Now get these, write these down, put these up somewhere, and ask yourself, number one, am I a Christian? And number two, how does this push me forward? How does this push me forward in my life? Three ingredients of a Christian, very simple. Here they are, hope in Christ. That's glory, honor, and immortality, summed up. Hope in Christ. Number two, active love for others. And number three, perseverance to the end. That's a Christian. Isn't that amazing? Right there, it's just so clear for us. That is a Christian. And by the way, the target, the target, what we're aiming at, what we're shooting for, and this might be controversial, this might sound a little odd to you, but I'm gonna demonstrate, I'm gonna support it in a moment. What we're aiming for, what we're shooting at, are to have works that stand on the day of judgment. I want you to think about that for a second. If you lived your Christian life like that, hope in Christ, active love for others, persevering to the end, in death, through death, aiming always to have works that stand in the final judgment, that's a well-lived Christian life. Whether you're young or old now, take hold of that. And live that. We know that that's how Jesus wants us to think. Because what does he say in the Sermon on the Mount? Look, if you do these things in front of other people, then you already have your reward. But if you do it in secret, your Father who sees in secret, he will reward you. Make no mistake. The New Testament is abundantly clear. Reward in glory in the presence of God for the eternal glory of God is a fitting motivation. It's all over the Bible. It's all over the New Testament. Jesus himself motivates with reward in the Sermon on the Mount. How can we get around that? Why would we want to get around that? To have works that stand on the day of judgment. I don't know about you, but this jolted me last week, personally, as a Christian. It jolted me. Because, you know, we can just get in the habit of doing things without our hearts. We get in the habit of doing works without faith, not motivated by faith and love. We're just doing stuff. And this reminds us, it, it, it wakes us up. It reigns us in. It takes our eyes off of oh, these fluttering eyeballs on all these distractions of this world. And it puts us right back where we need to be, unto death. Praise God for this passage. Praise God for this reminder. Third, faith results in eternal life. This is the third thing I want you to see here before we move on to the condemned. I don't know why I pointed up there. It's not up there. But before we move on to the condemned, <clears throat> I want you to see this about the person who is saved. Faith results in eternal life. On the day of final judgment, what will be the verdict for this person? Eternal life. Every Christian that stands before God will be one who hoped in Christ, actively loved others, and persevered to the end. And as Jesus says, fit this together, as Jesus says in Revelation 2.10, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. 
the same thing. All this fits together. It's just a beautiful puzzle. Be faithful unto death. He doesn't say it doesn't matter how you live. You're in me. You're clothed in me. Your blood's, my blood's covered you. Live however you'd like. You're saved. No. Nowhere in the New Testament do we find that kind of thinking. It's always faith and good works wed together. Jesus says, if you endure to the end, then I will give you the crown of life. Now, let me say this. That doesn't mean that we can't have assurance in this life. This needs to be made clear. Because the Bible tells us all throughout, 1 John in particular, he writes these things that you might know that you have eternal life. The Holy Spirit gives us assurance of salvation as the Holy Spirit cries out within our spirit, Abba, Father. So this is not a life that just waits till the end. I hope I make it. I hope I make it. No, that's not it at all. It is a life that is assured in Christ, but that presses on, just as Paul says in Philippians, to the prize in Christ Jesus. But do we wait? Do we wait until that day to receive eternal life? Is eternal life given only at the final judgment? Do we have to wait until that time? Well, it's interesting. What we find in Scripture is the teaching that eternal life is past, present, and future for us. And I'm going to go through this quickly, but I want you to see this. Eternal life is not just something we get at the end, but it's past, present, and future. It is past because God ordained that we would have it before the world began. So Acts chapter 13, verse 48. Listen to this language as you hear God's predestination of his elect. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. What does that mean? When did God give you eternal life? Well, one way that you can answer that question is when he chose you before the foundation of the world in Christ. Doesn't it say in Revelation 13, 8, that our names were written in the book of life before the foundation of the world? So we are recipients of eternal life in the mind of God in Christ before the world began. Totally apart from anything we ever do. But it is also present because we receive eternal life when we believe in Jesus. We have it now, John 5, 24. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. In John 17, 3. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. If you're a Christian, you know God. And if you know God, you have eternal life. That life is yours in the present. And finally, it is future, as we see here in Romans 2. And so, it will be for all believers... For all those justified by faith, what they seek will come to pass. Glory, it will happen. Honor, you'll have it. And immortality, it will be yours. Knowing God forever in a perfect, imperishable, and glorious existence, Romans chapter 2, verses 7 and 10 awaits you, child of the King. Praise God. But now we come to the condemned. As we finish this morning, and I won't say nearly as much about these folks because it doesn't sparkle. It doesn't glow. 
It's dark. And it's drab. It's just presented in all of its bald horror right here. And point blank, bluntly, look at verses 8 and 9. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. So just in case you missed that, we've moved on from the saved and now we're at the second point here, the condemned. Here we have a terrible picture of life lived apart from God. If the issue for the other people is faith, here it is unbelief. See, everything boils down to faith. Here it is unbelief. Instead of obeying or submitting to the truth, that's the language of faith. Paul used it earlier with regard to rejection of general revelation. Instead of obeying or submitting to the truth, these people obey unrighteousness. Instead of seeking the Lord in accordance with his word of promise, they reject the word altogether. And even on a more mundane level, these are the people Jesus describes in Matthew 6. Remember when he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. What does he say just before that? He says, do not seek what you shall eat, what you shall drink, what you shall wear, For do not the Gentiles seek after all these things. Just filling up life. Self-fulfillment. Not seeking the things of God, but living for self. The picture is one of selfishness, rebellion, and evil deeds. You know, Probably you've, you haven't thought too much about this, but it's not just murder, genocide, sex trafficking, child molestation, and all other human atrocities and debauchery that is in view. It's not just that. And by the way, if nothing else, the Jeffrey Epstein case or story, for example, informs us that there is far more that goes on than we even know about in the societies of men, in the homes of people. Far more wickedness than we see when people are all dressed up, nice, smiling in public. But it's not just for these horrific acts of obvious wickedness that this wrath and fury will come quote-unquote, civilized people have their own form of evil deeds in thought, word, and action, love of self and disregard for God and neighbor. In place of faith working through love, we will often find what Martin Luther describes in this way, persons who do good for their own sake. Now, this is where it hits a little closer to home. Am I about to describe you? Because it's far more likely. You know, you live in, a, in the South, Judeo-Christian culture. You know people. Your family members are Christian. Maybe your spouse is Christian. You're coming along to church. You're kind of doing what you need to do. It's far more likely that this describes you. Persons who do good for their own sake. 
either seeking honor and glory by it, from man that is, or trying to avoid slander, defamation, and hatred to which omission of the good might subject them. They do their deeds for their good reputation. And so from secret self-love and pride, those are not good deeds. That's your form of sin. God knows the heart. And his judgment is perfectly righteous as it looks not only at the outward act, but also the motive behind it. Listen to Jeremiah 17.10 as it describes what God sees when he looks. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. There are many people, many people who live lives filled with what they regard as good deeds. And what you probably regard, Christian, as good deeds, as you watch them live. And what society regards as good deeds, only to have all of their supposed deeds swept away in God's righteous, heart-searching judgment. Looks good. Makes them feel good. Won't stand on the day of wrath. And how does Paul describe this judgment as we close this morning? How does Paul describe it? In verse 8, wrath and fury. Wrath and fury. These two words appear to be used often in Scripture as synonyms, really just filling out one another. Two words used to convey the devastating effect. In other words, even if they roughly mean the same thing, we need two of them. It's so severe. The judgment of God is so catastrophically destructive and violent. We need two words, even if they mean roughly the same thing. The outcome is clear in Revelation 20, verse 15. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the reason that Jesus warns his very disciples in Matthew 10, verse 28. Do not fear. Listen to this. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Do you know the context for this? Jesus is talking to his disciples. And they're going to go out and they're going to suffer persecution. And what Jesus wants to lodge in their minds, maybe you've never thought about this, what Jesus wants to lodge in their minds is as they are standing before their persecutors and they're about to be burned alive, fed to lions, beheaded, whatever, crucified, whatever it might be, that Jesus wants them to think, do not fear man who is about to destroy your body, but fear God who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Persevere. That's what Jesus wants to put in the hearts of his people. Maybe you see Jesus as a a little less direct, a little less serious. Maybe these words just don't fit the Jesus you have come to Know in your own imagination. Know and worship and trust and serve the biblical Christ. In verse 9, he gives two more words. Tribulation and distress. The first word goes back to pressing or squashing grapes. Pressure to the point of breaking. That's the imagery. You see these grapes nicely 
put together, they, they've grown and they're, they're unbroken, and then you just get this smashing the grapes, crushed. The second word denotes being cramped into a narrow space, crushed and cramped forever. Once again, I'll quote Martin Luther here. He says, such tribulation as is joined with anguish has no more way out, not even any hope for a way out, no more comfort. Listen to me. While there's still hope, if you do not turn to Christ, if you do not trust in the work of Christ on your behalf and his resurrection, if you persist in your sin, that day will have no hope. It will be a hopeless day because there is no way out. Hell is forever. It's not as though you'll be there for 100,000 years and it'll let up 25 million years and God will come down and grab you and change his mind. It's over. This is it. Life is now. Be reconciled to God today. Don't wait until next week or next month or next year. Christ calls you now. Come. Today is the day to trust this Christ lest you be swept away. So as Christians have done for 2,000 years, the plea goes out. Be reconciled to God through Christ. Do not, do not go to this awful place of eternal torment. Do not choose sin, the pleasures of sin for a moment and then fleeting over eternal life with your maker. Oh, what folly. Oh, what deception from the evil one. It is in the heart of man to think that the pleasures of this life are worth more than the eternal weight of glory. What sadness that for the Christian, distraction and laziness and self-seeking replace the wondrous rewards that God will bestow on that day to his people. Feel the weight of this, Christian. Pray earnestly for those who don't know Christ. Take advantage of every opportunity because the day of wrath is coming. 1 Samuel 6.20 Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God. The answer is in Romans 5.11. We rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Through Christ alone. We are saved. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for your righteous judgment. Oh God, on that day, may it be that every person under the sound of my voice here or listening now would be found in Christ, authentically Christian, with good works that stand. 
Oh God, by your Holy Spirit, make this be, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.